imagine that you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit. Let's say murder. And when you get to the police station, you're denied your basic rights, including access to a legal representative. You're then tortured and questioned in an oppressive manner, and then you're charged and convicted of that crime and sentenced to life imprisonment. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But tragically, it has happened and continues to happen here in the UK. In this podcast series, we look at UK miscarriage of justice cases. My name is Maxine Twynham, and I'm a practising criminal defence solicitor, and I have interviewed a number of guests for this podcast series, including victims, family members, and others involved in miscarriage of justice cases. It has been shocking to look at what has happened in relation to the cases that we feature. In this first episode, we talked to Michael O'Brien. Mike was wrongfully convicted of the murder of Philip Saunders, who was brutally attacked on the 12th of October, 1987. And Mike spent more than 11 years in prison fighting to clear his name. This is Mike's story. So Mike, thank you for joining me on this podcast. For those people who don't know who you are, perhaps if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experiences. Well, my name is Michael O'Brien. I was known as one of the Cardiff News Agent 3. Together with my two co-accused, I was wrongly convicted of murder and served 11 years and 43 days in prison for a crime I didn't do. It was one of those experiences which is very difficult to sort of uh, grasp because I, I was one of those persons who believed that only the guilty went to prison. Innocent people didn't go to prison. It just didn't happen. I was very much a person who believed in the death penalty at the time. I, I believed that, you know, if you were found guilty of serious offences, that uh, you should be executed. Obviously, I've changed my views over the years so because of what's happened to me. And unfortunately, it is a case of people don't believe it until they see it. And I was one of those, unfortunately. And I learned some very harsh lessons along the way. Mike, what was life like before you were arrested? My life wasn't brilliant, you know what I mean? I come from a poor background. You know, I was living on family income support at the time, as well as working, you know, to prop up my money. I was earning something like £54 a week, you know, uh, you know, and my wife to look after and a child and another one on the way. And it was very difficult, you know, but I had my family and you can never put a price on your family, you know, family values, family home, but I was trying to do it. I was trying to put food on the table and trying to do the, to do the, you know, what a husband should do, just to go out to work and bring home the bacon. I was doing the best I could in difficult circumstances. Now, the offence for which you were arrested for and charged and wrongly convicted of was the murder of Philip Saunders. That is correct. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened to Mr Saunders? Well, on the night in question, Mr Saunders was robbed of his shop's takings and battered about the head about five times, according to the police. And, you know, the, the robbery was the motive. And they, there was one person seen, at, you know, running away from the scene. He was described as six foot tall, 15 stone build, and he had a bit of a limp. There was an eyewitness who was steadfast that there was only one person she saw at the murder scene that night and not three. So... So if that's the case, how come you ended up being arrested? Well, 
Why no. did the police suspect you? Well, and... the, the person, the, well, we were out on the night in question trying to steal cars. I'm not going to say I was an angel because I wasn't. You know, when you come from a background where I come from, it's all about survival and it's all about fitting in. And I, I went along with the lads to try and steal a car. And that's what our motive was that night. Murder was not on the agenda. That is just something totally which would not cross my mind. You know, I, I didn't have a violent bone in my body. My school records show that. Do you know what I mean? I was bullied in school and everything, and yet I never very often retaliated. So, you know, that, that's basically in a nutshell what we were doing. And we were in the wrong, there's no doubt about that. But did we deserve what was to come? I don't think so at all. My understanding, having read your book, which we'll talk about later on, that one of your books that you've since published is that 42 people were arrested initially for this offence, including you and, and your two co-accused. And the police didn't seem to really have an idea who had committed the offence, apart from, as you said, that there was one person who had uh, attacked Mr Saunders and that he probably that knew Mr Saunders. Well, what brought us into play, me, myself, Darren Hall and Ellie Sherwood were down his, my sister-in-law's house, Ellis's other sister, Mandy's. And I met Darren Hall for the very first time that Monday night that Philip Saunders was killed. I didn't know this man from Adam, so, you know, but I did know within five or ten minutes there was something not quite right with him because he was boasting about that he had done this, he had done that, he could drive a car, he could do this and that. And I just thought, I looked at my sister-in-law, I went out the kitchen, she was doing some washing at the time. And I said, where did you get this bungalow from? I said, I don't think he's got any upstairs, and I find any downstairs. And we had to laugh about it. Yeah. So I could see quite clearly that there was something not right with Darren Hall. So on the night in question, we were three miles away from what, the murder scene. Now, for us to have committed this murder, we would have had to run something like three miles in three or four minutes. You know what I mean? When the four-minute mile, for starters, by Roger Bannister, you know, was a world record. So for us to have done that, wow, I don't know how the hell we've done that. No. But this is what Darren Hall, this is what Darren Hall said in his statements. Now, after a lot of police questioning and a lot of police pressure, Darren Hall confessed and said he done it, and he made 14 different statements, and then he settled on the one that it was Ellis Sherwood who killed Philip Saunders, while me and him were the lookout, which was totally untrue. I mean, when I seen these statements, I, I recall saying to the police, because Darren Hall said to me words to the effect, why don't you tell him what happened then? And I said to him, you let him get it. You know, you know we never done it. You're a liar. You know, and I did lose my temper. You know what I mean? I was just so shocked. Well, I must have been, like you said, really shocking to hear that he'd confessed to something that not only he didn't do, but that you and, and uh, your co-accused Ellis hadn't done. My head couldn't cope with it. I was only 19 myself, you know. When... Tell us a little bit about the police station, because you were arrested... Well, I can remember being arrested at my sister-in-law's house, Mandy's house. They smashed down the door. There was police everywhere. They come up to Ellis Sherwood and said, are you Ellis Sherwood? He said, yes. He said, I'm arresting you for the murder of Philip Saunders. And they said the same to me. And my gut reaction was, who the F in Ellis Philip Saunders? Yeah. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Yeah. I don't know who he is. 
you know, so we got taken to the police station and I was terrified. I gotta be honest with you, they were saying things to me in the car, scum like you just don't deserve to live. If the hanging would have been brought back, you know what I mean? You'd be on the list and things like that. So by the time we got to the interview, I was in pieces in any event. And did you have a solicitor? No, I was denied access to a lawyer on numerous occasions. They said because we might we might tell other people about it, so we'd get rid of evidence and stuff like that. And we were saying, what evidence? There's no evidence because we wasn't there. I know others might not, but if perhaps you could just tell us that you had a horrific experience in the police station because you were tortured. Uh, by the police, including being handcuffed, for instance, to hot radiators. Just give us some examples of the treatment you experienced at the hands of the police who were investigating. I was, first of all, I was handcuffed to a hot radiator, which was burning my hand, my arm, because obviously the cuffs were metal, so you could feel the heat coming through. And they did it in such a way that when officers were coming into the room where we were handcuffed, when I was handcuffed to the hot radiators, they would say something at me and throw some nasty comments at me and make me feel even more uncomfortable. Then they would leave the room and then come back and do the same thing maybe a half hour later. Then they removed me from the one room and handcuffed me to a table leg, which was one of the desks in one of the CID offices. And they were saying to me, like, you know, if you don't say Alice Sherwood done it, you're going down with them. I said, well, I can't tell you that because I know he didn't do it. He was with me. And they said, well, if you have that attitude, you're going to go down and you're going to get life yourself. And I said, well, I can't tell you what I don't know. And I was crying. You know, I was in bits. I mean, I asked for a lawyer. They said, you're not having one. I said, why not? They said, because you're, you're not entitled to one. You might pass information on to people. And I kept on saying, well, who are these people you're talking about? You know, so I, I wasn't getting, it was just going around in circles. And I was kept in the incommunicado for three days in the police station, which I believe is the legal time limit. They could keep us, they had to charge us or release us or go to the magistrate's court, as I now know, and get a further extension, which they didn't do. But they released us on bail on the 3rd of November, and I ended up in what we would describe as a madhouse, you know, in a mental institution because I was so traumatised by what had happened to me. I mean, I was in a terrible state. You hadn't, you've never had uh, before then, you hadn't had any previous convictions. I think you'd only been in a police station on two occasions previously, once as a victim of a crime. And you were, like you said, 19 years old. There was also an officer called D.I. Lewis. Tell us a little bit about what happened and what he alleged that you had said to um, one of your co-accused, Ellis. On the second... On the 3rd of November, they arrested us to to appear. You know, we were released on bail, basically, till December of that year, pending further inquiries. But a week later, on the 10th of November, they said significant new evidence had come to light, and they re-arrested us. But they, when my mother asked them, were you taking my son, or were charging him with murder? So they already made up their minds that they were going to charge us even before they interviewed us on this significant new evidence. So we were conveyed to Canton Police Station, the same police station as um, we were before, and 
Some witnesses come forward. Allegedly, we supposed to spend money in town. We were bragging about the murder. We said you should have come with us and you could have had a bit of the money. There's only one problem with that. Ellis Sherwood was locked up the night before and he was in the magistrate's court. So how could he be in town with me, bragging to Christopher Chickenell and Morris about this money when he had a cast iron alibi? And yet that was ignored. And so, at some stage, you had a conversation, didn't you, with Ellis? Because you were in the cell next to him at one point. Yes, after, I think it was late on November the 10th, maybe about 8 o'clock. I, I lost all track of time, to be honest with you. I didn't have a watch on or anything. And I said to Ellis, I'm scared. My wife was heavily pregnant with our second child. She was eight months pregnant. They had, they had her in custody as well. They were questioning her, and I, all I said innocently was, I'm scared, what's going to happen? I'm scared about what they're going to do with Donna, which is my, my wife at the time. And that was the only conversation we ever had. And then the next minute, you know, quarter to nine that night, we get hold out of the cells. I heard a conversation between you and Ellis, I wrote it down earlier on. And I, and I can remember the expletives I used was no fucking way can we say that's lies, Paul, because they made sure my, my sister there on that occasion. And what was D.I. Lewis alleging that you had said? Well, the conversation went something like this. You're talking about Roman. Being on Roman means nothing. And I was supposed to reply, why didn't you tell him what happened? And then I just replied, keep your mouth shut. If Hall hadn't been grassing us, none of us would be here. Uh, and it was words to those effects. It was a quite incriminating conversation. Yeah, virtually you know, like, well, a confession. Like a confession, yeah, basically admitting to the murder. I can categorically say, even now to this day, that confession never took place because we never said it. We did not do this murder. They knew we didn't do this murder. But unbeknown to me at that particular time, and I was only a youngster, I didn't know that years later it would come out that Inspector D.I. Lewis had a habit of making these confessions outside the cells, which I can go into a bit more in the other cases a bit further down the line. But at that time, we didn't know anything about this Inspector Lewis. So, you know, but who are they going to believe? Somebody who was out nicking cars that night or a police officer? And he reckons he had a pen and paper, the expenses form, and he wrote it on, on the wall. Well, if you do a little experiment, get a piece of paper and try writing down a full conversation like he reckons we said, and whether you can write it on the wall, the pen would run out. Well, that's one thing we proved uh, couldn't be done. He said it was a verbatim conversation. And what happened to that note? Because it went my understanding is it went missing. It went missing because we wanted to get it tested by, it's called the ESTA test, which is a, basically electrostatic deposition analysis. That's, that's the long word for ESDA testing. And it would have shown whether that was a true and accurate record of what was recorded. And that's why he went missing, because he knew he was going to get caught out. Now, unbeknown to me, he inserted 18 words into the Welsh Conspiracy Cases statement of a guy called Nicholas Hodges, and he was caught out. It all started coming to light many years later. That, it, that he had a, a habit of, me, you know, being outside the cells or, you know, I confess here's when I prepared earlier, you may as well have said, like, you know, because he had one in numerous cases. But like you said at the time, at the time you we didn't know. know. That. No, we didn't know. 
Um, and you must have been flabbergasted that he was insinuating that you had said the things he alleged you had said my whole when world, you hadn't. My whole world collapsed because I sat there and I thought, this police officer's lying. They don't do these things. They shouldn't be doing these things. Why are they doing these things? I had all these things running through my head. What is going on here? Why am I here? Why? And I could not get my head around what was going on. But one thing I did accept, I knew that he was lying and I knew he was a bent cop. And that was the first time I ever come across somebody who was a dishonest copper in my lifetime. Because I knew I was telling the truth. I had no reason to lie. If Ellis Sherwood had done the crime and I would have been with him, I would have been the first one to hold my hands up and say, right, fair enough. You know what I mean? That this is right. But when I knew I was telling the truth, I was not going to make a confession. And they tried to make me confess to say, first of all, that it was Ellis. And I played a small role in it. Knowing about the, I didn't know about joint enterprise at the time, but now I know. So I can understand where they were trying to get the confession out of me, why they wanted to do what they did to strengthen their case. But it was a hell of a shock. I mean, I can remember the 30th of November, 1987, when we were remanded in custody when they charged us. I was having a nervous breakdown. And all my arms... Uh, I couldn't, I, the police, police, prison officers had to hold me up because I was going down the stairs and I nearly collapsed. And I remember a prison officer saying to me, O'Brien, oh, get yourself together. And I couldn't get the words out, but it was in my head. I said, if I could get the fucking head together, don't you think I would? But I couldn't get the words out. And I thought I had said it, but I hadn't said it. And I ended up over the hospital. I was in such a bad state. And it uh, affected me. Whilst you're on remand, awaiting a trial, I know that one of well, the worst experience of your life happened at that, at that time, which was that you tragically lost your daughter, Kylie. Yes, I was treated quite badly when my daughter died by the priest coming to uh, come into with my solicitor. I, he said, I think you better sit down. I can remember as clear as day. And he turned around and said to me words to the effect like, oh, he's too upset, he can't go to the funeral. And I said to my solicitor, you better get him out of here now because I'm going to lose my temper. I said, who's this man working for God or the Home Office? You know what I mean? Because his attitude was like a prison officer. You know what I mean? And, and it really stunk. And I can remember my sister saying, listen, your daughter died this morning. But my head totally just went. I just said, how can this happen? This cannot happen. I seen her yesterday. She was okay. And I was just numb from the toes right through my body and I mean the heart rendering I felt was as bad as being arrested it was horrible it was indescribable the way I felt and you did go to the funeral but you of course had to go in handcuffs I was double handcuffed the only thing I can say for the prison officers who took me they did show me some compassion you know, and Mr. Jenkins, I remember him very well. You know what I mean? I've got a lot of time for Mr. Jenkins. There are some good prison officers. I want to state that. I know some of them did mistreat me, uh, you know, as I was doing my sentence in other prisons. But i got to give due where credit is due. They were really good and they supported me and they helped me as much as they could. Tell me a little bit about your trial, because 
Eventually, you have your trial. My understanding is that the main evidence against uh, you and the others is obviously Hall's confession, false confession. But also, the other evidence was obviously D.I. Lewis's statement or evidence about the conversation he alleged took place. And they had some other witnesses who either had criminal convictions or cases pending who had uh, alleged that there had been various conversations or they've overheard or seen things. Uh, and that was the crux of the evidence. Yeah, there was five prosecution witnesses who were in serious trouble with the police at a particular time. One of them was an alcoholic. One of them was charged with firearms offences. There were serious charges, some of these people. One of them was um, posing as a police officer and one of them was, I believe, for sexual offences. Now, they were all in serious trouble with the police and they just happened to be... Now, and I don't like what Stuart Lewis then. They alleged we confessed to them when we were on remand. Now, anyone who knows anything about prisons, anyone who's on Rule 43 or for their own protection, you cannot get anywhere near them. So how the hell we were supposed to have confessed to them and been allowed to be with them? Beggar's belief. And these witnesses, years later, did admit on national television that the police put them up to giving evidence against us and that they did get rewards for giving false evidence against us because they were in serious trouble. I'll give you a particular example. Robert Connie Bear, who used the name Robert Bradley as well, was up for firearms offences. And the judge said to him last time, you come up against me for firearms offences, I'm going to life you off. So what did he come up against him again? Firearms offences. So when he was approached by the police to do a deal, it was in his best interest. And all of them had seen, all the witnesses had criminal convictions. Not one of them had any, how can I put it, honesty or integrity about them. They were, you know, they were that kind of people. They were the lowest of the low, some of these people they used. I mean, there wasn't one credible witness at all there. Now, the police haven't explained either how one person turned into three. Now, the reason why that happened is because they went round to Kim Rumbelow, who was the witness at the time, who said she would look out of the window and saw one person running away. The police had visited her a second time and got her to say, well, she didn't have her glasses on. She might have been mistaken. She wasn't mistaken at all. She knew what she had saw. She was quite clear and she was quite adamant in her detailed first statement. But then, for some unknown reason, she changed the statement at the last minute. So, jury go out and come back and they convicted you all. I think it was a majority, 10 to 2. And then, obviously, the judge sentences you to life imprisonment and you're taken down. I mean, it must be almost impossible for you to put into words what that felt like to be convicted of something you couldn't do, but also something that's, well, let's be honest, the most serious offence that you can commit. What was going through your head at that point? I nearly collapsed in the dock. I turned on to my father and I, and I said these words to him. I said, Dad, as long as you know I never done it, that's what matters. I didn't do this. I can remember the words of the judge. You have had every opportunity through your barristers, through your solicitors to put your case. You have been found guilty, rightly in my view.
and those were the words that Michael Davis said to me. And I was furious and crying and saying, you've got the wrong people. We didn't do it. And I was adamant. And the Jew, he turned to the Jew and he said, oh, we always get outbursts like this, in cases like this, and just dismissed everything. I wonder what he would actually like to say to me now. Absolutely. And then you went serving prisoner. Just give us some, some examples of what prison life was like and the sort of things that you witnessed on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, after 16 months, I was, I was taken from Cardiff prison and I was put in the top security prisons because life sentence prisoners do not stay in local prisons as a rule. That's what it was like in those days. And I went to Long Latin and spent seven years there. And in that seven years, I seen more violence than what I've ever seen on the streets. Give us a sort of example of some seven of the murders took place. Seven murders. Seven inmates were killed in Latin between 1989 and 1997 when I was there. And I, I witnessed a guy die in front of me. I was watching him die and I couldn't do nothing about it. What sort of effect? Was that having on you, your mental health? I mean, I, I imagine you're in survival instinct. You're trying to just get by day. Traumatised even more. I mean, I mean, for two weeks, I couldn't sleep. For two weeks, I couldn't sleep after seeing that body on the stretcher. And I see he, he was stabbed in the groin, the lungs, the heart. Whoever did this knew what they were doing. And they meant to kill him. And... I know the person who actually killed him and he did get found guilty of the murder, but because he was doing a life sentence anyway, it didn't matter. Now, you said before that you were obviously now serving and I know you did over 11 years. You never gave up hope, you, you thought, I know. Um, given this example of some of the things you did, I know that you wrote, for instance, to every MP at one stage. I wrote to many journalists. I wrote, I went on hunger strikes in protest of my innocence. I had some newspapers involved. ITV took an interest, BBC. But I think the, the, the most significant thing I've done is, was to educate myself. I had no education when I went into prison, no qualifications. I had nothing. I come up with seven. So I had three English exams. Yeah, I think they were at the time. I got levels one, two, and three in maths as well. I also come up with the city and guilds, you know, level two. So I was quite proud of that. I started studying law when I was in prison, took two home secretaries to court along the way, rights for access to journalists for prisoners. So I made legal history, you know, with my studying. So, I mean, I use my time wisely all the time. You know, I, I did go through a bad phrase when I first hit Long Latin. I gotta be honest with you. I did go on the drink and the drugs. There was a lot of drugs in prison. And I took to him like that to water. And for the first year, I didn't care whether I lived or died. What changed? What made you change and decide that you had to fight back? Other innocent people like Paddy Hill, Birmingham Six, you know, Johnny Walker from the Birmingham Six, Huey Callahan from the Birmingham Six, Carl Bridgewater, boys who were wrongly convicted. I'm trying to think of his name now. Vincent Hickey done a lot for me, like, you know, and they prop me up if you like. And they said, listen, you can't go on like this. I can remember collapsing in my cell. And I realized I cried. I sat, I, when I got off the floor, I sat on the bed and I cried and I realized I had a drug problem. So I went down and seen the psychologist and psychiatrist. And I said, I need help. This is the situation. And I told them everything. My innocence, everything. I went through every single thing I've been through. 
and they helped me get off the drugs. But then the anger come. That, that was the start of it, the anger. And I thought, you bastards, you're not going to do this to me. Okay, I'm only a poor boy from Evie, but how dare you? And then I started challenging them then. I started reading law books. I started becoming the prison lawyer then, didn't I? Uh, and on the adjudications. And I caused some problems over the, the cannabis being in, in the prisoners. What, what happened was I managed to get a report from France which says cannabis stays in your system for 77 days. Right. And they were coming for the boys every 60 days. Well, that means you're being punished twice for the same offence. You're not allowed to do that under Protocol 7 of Rule 4, 4, Paragraph 2 of the European Convention. So I started quoting them that. So then they got the barristers in then from the Home Office to come in. So I caused them absolute mayhem. Mayhem. You I know? can imagine... I can imagine that. So you fought back and yes, then eventually, I know you had one appeal quite early on that was turned down. Um, yes, in 1990. And then obviously the case went to the Criminal Case Review Commission and they, they got the Thames Valley Police involved. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'd like to rewind a little bit because I, I had a few TV documentaries made about me before that and that that transpired with the CCRC being set up in the wake of the Birmingham Six case, and mine was one of the first cases to go before him. So Darren Hall went on, on the TV and actually admitted that he gave false evidence. All the witnesses retracted their evidence and said the police put him up to giving evidence. Then we got all the stuff on Inspector Stuart Lewis that he had fabricated evidence with the outside confession in the Welsh conspiracy case. Andrew Yellen, Sharon Kelleher, he lied to a Cardiff coroner, he was reported for that, it's never been done before. It all started unravelling. So that was put in the TV programme. Then we went to the CCRC, then they wanted further inquiries and they called in the Thames Valley Police. Now the first, my gut reaction was when they called in the police, is, oh, not police investigating police, I'm not having this. And I told my solicitor to leave. I also told uh, the CCRC woman to leave because I didn't want anything to do with it. Is that because you thought they just protect their own and they just wouldn't find fault with what? I just thought police investigating police was just uh, immoral. I just thought, you know, they, they would... It should be that. someone independent. That, yes. I, it, that's like uh, me investigating my brother for a crime he's done and uh, exonerating him, like, sort of yeah. thing. You know, that's how I thought it, it worked. But to my surprise, in 1998, I'm in my cell, and this document quite thick comes from the CCRC, and I started going through it. Took me about three hours to go through it, and then I started crying. And my friends were like, you know, some of the, Mike, it's not like you to cry, what's going on? I said, you're not gonna believe this, but everything I said 20 years ago, about what these police officers done to me, or 11 years ago, sorry, is in here. Handcuffing to the radiators. Any suggestions that Mr. O'Brien was interviewed off the record would be difficult to resist. That was the words. I'm like, this is dynamite. So I said to my barrister, Gareth Pierce, my sister, Gareth Pierce, I said, we're all going for bail. We're going to be home for Christmas. And they all laughed at me. <laughs> they said, you all got no chance of bail. I said, listen, I'm telling you, go for bail. So we all had a big chat, the solicitors uh, for Ellis and Darren, and we decided to go for bail. 
And lo and behold, I was right. We got bail pending the appeal That's just before Christmas, two days, three days before Christmas, and on my, four days before my daughter's birthday, the one who died in prison. But ironically, although you get bail pending appeal, you know, to most, most people probably think, well, you'd have your appeal hearing within a couple of months. But in fact, it wasn't until the following December, was it, until your appeal was heard? It took it took them a year, but I gave them a year of hell. I mean, I done Panorama, I done This Morning, I done every TV program I could think of, I could do, and and I even had a demonstration in Cardiff Town Centre with other victims of miscarriages of justice in Wales, and demanded that they heard my appeal now, you know, now today, you know, not next year, and I mean, I was trying to put the pressure on them really. You know, and, and I marched, we marched through the Cardiff City Centre, and there was a few of us, about 100 of us, marched through saying, you know, we want justice, and, and I did all sorts. That was the start of me calling for a public inquiry into all the miscarriages of justice in Wales. And just to give your listeners an idea of how many miscarriages, there was the Darvell brothers, there was the Cardiff Three, there was my case, the Welsh conspiracy case. There was a Sharon Kelleher case, was a, a nat- narrowly avoided miscarriage of justice. There, there was Annette Hewings and what they called the Merthyr Three. And that's just a, Jonathan Jones, Eddie Browning. And this is just a tip of the iceberg. And this is why I said, considering Wales is only a small country, to have so many cases like this in such a small area, there obviously was an institutionalised problem. And, you know, they've never given me that inquiry. I'm still waiting for that inquiry. I'm still so the, fighting for it. Yeah, I'm still fighting for it. I've got a new book coming out now uh, in September, which is called The Dossier, um, Miscarriages of Justices from 1982 to 2016, where I've identified a number of cases, including my own, with new evidence in there, which undermines the confession which Stuart Lewis made. And, you know, it's, it's calling for a judicial inquiry. And the only reason why I've changed from a public inquiry to a judicial inquiry is because I've seen what one another Sunday, bloody Sunday, where all the lawyers allegedly got rich. I don't know whether that's true, and nothing actually got done. So, so you want a proper, a proper judicial inquiry set up by a high court judge? Yes, where they have wide ranging powers, where they can where they can interview witnesses, you know, get people on the stand, and all the other alternative is a reconciliation and truth commission, something like they had in South Africa. At least the truth comes out, and even if nobody gets done for it, at least lessons can be learned. So something's got to come out of all this, and this is what I've been fighting for since, well, since the day I came out in 98. So you eventually have your appeal hearing. Yes. And you won the appeal, and your convictions were quashed. What did they find? They found, obviously, that the convictions were unsafe, but on what basis? 115 breaches of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. They said that, you know, it was disgraceful the way they behaved. Handcuffed to hot radiators was breach of Article 3, which it would be in, in today's terms, you know, um, which is basically the right not to be tortured, inhumane, degrading treatment, torture and punishment, which is what they did. What about Hall's confession? Because I think, is it right, they heard from four experts. One was a prosecution expert but about his difficulties that he had. Well, they said he was a Walter Mitty character, and what did come out of the court of appeal is he had confessed to a crime he hadn't done before, which 
the police hadn't disclosed their defence. Now, the magistrate court, Sir Lincoln Allen, told Darren Hall many years ago, you're a Walter Mitty character, stop living, you want to start living in the real world. Now, his solicitor, Simon Mumford, at that particular time, God rest his soul, he, 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 he's passed away now, he was one of the only solicitors who come up to the Court of Appeal and tried to rectify what they did at the trial. The other two abandoned this, but he was the only one. And he said, Darren Hall could not have committed these offences because he was in my office at that particular time when he was supposed to have done these crimes. So when the magistrate court found that out, you know, they say, you know, they give him a, you know, they kicked him out for wasting police time, really. But the fact is there was evidence that he had confessed to somebody he hadn't done before. There was elements there which Southwell's police knew about and yet they ignored him and tried to hide him. Because the reality is that when he was initially arrested and interviewed, and as you said, made several statements, I mean, he'd even said that he was schizophrenic at one point. You hit um, him with a house brick, how long will I get? I can remember the words exactly. You so know, he, he gave, yeah. given conflicting accounts all the way through. But the police obviously couldn't have believed him at the time because they released all of you on police bail after your initial arrest? Well, they couldn't have believed his confession. No. That's why they went out of their way, rounded up some of the criminals who were in serious trouble with the police, because they were after Ennis, they were, my co-accused, Ennis Sherwood. Ennis Sherwood, um, no disrespect, and I don't mean this in a bad way, I'm not judging him in any way. No. But he was involved in a bit more than what I was involved in, you know? And the fact is, they were out to get him because the police told him, we'll get you one day, because he was always getting off with petty things, and it was annoying, and they couldn't cope with that. You know, he had a good solicitor, and that was it, and they didn't like it, and they told him. But, they gave but to get him, point. they had to get me as well. I, I was just collateral damage, if you like, in, in the equation, because they didn't want me, but they knew to get Ellis... And this is how bad they wanted it. We're going to talk in another podcast about the sort of work you've done since your conviction was quashed. But this tell us a little bit about, you know, you're, you've spent over 11 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. You're then released. What was life like? Very difficult. Even now, people think that, you know, it's been... You know, you look back from 98 since I've been released, it took me four years to get the help I needed, psychiatrist help. I thought I was normal, but I was far from normal. And I had issues. I'm still seeing a psychiatrist today. Every month I still see my psychiatrist. I'm on medication. Without the medication, I can't get out of bed. That's how bad it is, the depression, because it's just too much for me to cope with. So every day is a battle when I get out. You know, make no mistake about that, it is a battle. But what keeps me going is fighting for others. That's what keeps me alive. That's what keeps me going. My son, Dington, also keeps me going. You know, he keeps me on my toes and, <laughs> you know. But they're the reasons what keeps me going, really, is Dington and fighting for other people. Because I think if I sat back and thought about what I've been through for too long, I, I think I wouldn't be here. And that's the bottom line. So all the books I'm writing and everything, all the campaigning on people's cases has kept me alive all these years. And I just hope one day 
that we can't get justice for some of the people I'm fighting for, because that's what it's all about now. It's not about Michael O'Brien. Michael O'Brien's got his name cleared. He's done and dusted. But it's about the aftermath and what people were left behind. I'd just like the opportunity to thank Mike for sharing his story with us. Mike works tirelessly to help others, and I'd like to thank him for all he's done to help me with this podcast series. In the next episode, we focus on the case of Stephen Downing, and I talk to Don Hale, the journalist that battled to free Stephen's name and had to endure threats to his life and intimidation by a number of people. It is a shocking, shocking story and shows what can happen when no one wants the truth to come out.